jump in and start talking about it, okay? Luke 19. Last week, we uh, discussed the last parable that Jesus would tell as he journeyed to Jerusalem. He's going to tell some parables while he's in Jerusalem. But this is kind of the climax of his, uh, of his ministry because now we're coming to the last week of his life, which begins in verse number 28 of Luke 19. Shall we read it together? When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's Word. So we're now entering what I believe is going to be a very rich and profound experience for us because the rest of the Gospel of Luke is basically the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to have a couple of months here as we go through it to, um, to investigate it very closely and see that God's salvation plan is culminating. Um, God, from Ephesians chapter 1, we are told, from the, before the foundation of the world, loved us and chose us. This plan that is happening right now in verse 28, when he said these things, he came into Jerusalem, that has all been planned from eternity past. And now God's sovereign plan is coming about in both Acts 2 and Acts 4, we are told that all of these things that are happening are happening because God has directed them to happen in this way. Okay? Genesis chapter 3.15 is the first time in human history that God makes the promise of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve commit their sin of rebellion, he states that the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, even though the head of the serpent will strike a blow at the heel of, this, of that seed. It makes me think, then, as, as God's plan is culminating and, and, and climaxing here in this last few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, it makes me think 
also of John chapter 1, that very first week of Jesus' ministry, when he called the disciples to himself. Here's the very first uh, time he meets these individuals, and he actually has Andrew and John in his home, or wherever it was he was staying. Andrew and John spent the night with him. And at the end of that night, Andrew is freaking out because they found the one they're looking for. They had been seeking this Messiah ever since Genesis 3.15. Intelligent Jews and God-fearing Jews searched the Old Testament for these clues that would lead them to choose the Messiah. Now, Andy Stanley tells us that the Old Testament didn't matter and only became relevant after the resurrection when people looked back into it. Folks, that is nonsense. Every word of the Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus or foretells the coming of Jesus. Again, not his name, Jesus, but that this Messiah would come. And Andrew, who's a God-fearing Jew, is looking for this Messiah, and it took him one night with Jesus to realize this is the guy. And he runs out and he finds his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Peter, Andrew, James, and John immediately start to follow him, and Jesus tracks down another guy named Philip, and Philip immediately believes as well, and Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. This is all happening in the very first week of Jesus' ministry. This happens the very next day. Andrew and John stay in the house with Jesus. The next day, they find Peter. The next day, I mean, it's just constant. Philip goes and finds his buddy Nathaniel and says, we have found the one, this is key, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. See what I'm saying? There are these clues, there are these, these uh, prophetic foretellings of what this Messiah would look like, and Philip is saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of those writings. So he says, of whom was written in Moses and the prophets. So we think to ourselves, well, where in the world was the Messiah written about in Moses and the prophets? I already mentioned Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the gospel. In Genesis 22, 18, when, when God makes the promise to Abraham, he says, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So whoever this Messiah would be, it would have to be a person who had come from the line of Abraham. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we are told that the scepter will not depart from Judah. It identifies the tribe. It's kind of like Old Testament CSI. Okay, we got all these different clues that we got to follow, like investigate, and we'll have these uh, detectives, so to speak, looking at the Scripture so we can identify the right person when He comes. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18, God through Moses says that He will raise up a prophet like Moses who will have all his, God's words in his mouth, and He will do everything I tell Him to do. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 to 9, it's the story of the Israelites after they had uh, escaped from uh, Egyptian captivity and they're out in the wilderness and they're complaining and the fiery serpents are sent by God to bite and kill these individuals who are complaining and the solution to this, the antidote to this is Moses, build a staff with a snake on it which by the way is the symbol for medicine even yet today, the snake around the staff and Jesus in John 3 goes back to that passage and exegetes it and says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all who look to Him might live and be saved. Everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. 
Perhaps the greatest clue in the Old Testament was the Passover supper when, again, Moses and the Israelites, still in Egyptian captivity, uh, are told that the angel of death will pass over their house if they put the blood, post, blood on the doorposts of their home. And when Jesus comes again in that John 1 passage, John the Baptist says, look, here is the Lamb of God who will do what? Take away the sin of the world. Here is that precious lamb without spot or blemish, foreordained from before the foundation of the world. Again, this is a plan that originated in the mind of the Trinity from eternity past and now is being played out in Jerusalem in the year 35, 36, whatever it is, A.D. Then we have the prophets. We mentioned one in Sunday school, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Unto you a child is born, unto us a son is given. Not one word of the Scripture is wasted. We believe in something called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, which means we believe every single word is important. We were having a conversation about that before, how God has, there is no mistake, every word matters, every word means something. And so when Derek explained to us that you know, Jesus is human, but he's also from eternity past. When he says, unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. Two different statements. The child, human, will be born. He will begin there. But the son is given because he has existed from eternity past. He is the gift, 1 John 4, 14 says, for, the, for God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Isaiah 40, verse 10, 11 tells us he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says he will raise up through David a righteous branch. Another clue. He must be a son of David. Inherit the kingship. Daniel 9, 24 and 25, which we'll look at next week because it relates to the 70 weeks of Daniel and the day that the Messiah will march into Jerusalem. And I read it in verse number 42 and it says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day day. This is a specific day that exactly worked out. Ezekiel 34, 23 tells us that he will set up one shepherd because the, Isra the Israel's shepherds, in other words, the spiritual shepherds of the people, were scattering the flock because of their, uh, their greed and their, and their own selfish desires. Jesus, even during his ministry, demonstrates that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Remember on the road to Emmaus when he's walking with the two disciples who are slow and foolish to believe. They say to Jesus, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? Jesus basically says, I am the only one who gets it here. And you are foolish and slow to believe. And it says, he went to the Moses and the prophets and expounded unto them all things concerning himself. In John chapter 5, there's actually two places in John 5 where he talks to the Pharisees who are supposed to be these brainiacs in the law and the scribes that says, you search the scriptures, but you don't know that those, they are those that testify of me. Here I am, Jesus is saying. Then why did some believe and some not? The Old Testament Messiah was predicted and promised and now the Messiah is revealed he appears in the person of jesus christ andrew philip and others agree and follow him immediately and then you have this vast majority of people that don't we have about 25 people sitting in this auditorium that say we love jesus he is our savior at least i hope that's what we all say and then we have tens of thousands of people out there not attending church not any church any church very rare for us to be gone on a Sunday, but a couple weeks ago when we were coming back from Bob Jones and we were driving on a Sunday. I mean, people are everywhere. Millions of people during the church hour not in church. Why is this? All these clues seem to us to be no-brainers, right? How can you not connect all of this pre-written stuff 
to now Jesus and then say, he is who he says he is, and I gladly receive him as my Lord and Savior. Let me make this point before we move on. It isn't for lack of information that people don't receive Christ. It is a lack of illumination. It is sometimes people don't need more information. Sometimes people don't need more arguments and debates. The fact of the matter is you can talk to these individuals and give them more information. They almost don't need further information. They need to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit that says, yes, this is true. Just like in 2 Corinthians 4 when it says, God who commanded the light to shine in the darkness, talking about creation, has now shined in your hearts to give the light of the glory of the gospel of God. It may not be that they need to know or hear the gospel again. What they need is for the Spirit of God to wake up their minds to this truth. And so maybe time to change tactics a little bit and realize that, yes, our part is to give the information, but we cannot give the illumination. We just can't. And pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our friends and family members who are unsaved that we love to open their eyes to this truth. Their hearts are dark, and so let that be the theme of our prayers. God, open their eyes. It's interesting that the people who should have had and did have the most information about uh, the Scriptures, the scribes and the Pharisees, very few of them responded to Christ with saving faith, and that is because of this lack of illumination. So the question for us today as we move into this lesson is, do you really recognize him? Do you recognize the Messiah? The account of the, transfigure, uh, of the, trans, the account of the triumphal entry is going to prove that the thinking of most of the people was misguided. This is not a happy moment. It's a sad event, and it, 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 it kind of ends with Jesus actually, verse number 41, weeping over the city because they would not receive him. They did not know, the end of verse 44, that this was the time of their visitation. So, there are messianic clues even in our passage. It starts at the Mount of Olives. It's mentioned a couple of times in the section that we just read. And the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament, without pointing out all kinds of scripture passages, is, is a messianic uh, place. The only place I'll mention is Zechariah 14.4, where it talks about Jesus when he returns again, the Messiah when he returns the second time will actually land on the Mount of Olives when his feet hit it, they have this enormous earthquake or something will happen that this, this mountain will just crack in two. The folks did not recognize the type of Messiah Jesus was, even though they're rejoicing, verse number 35, 6, 7, throwing their coats and all this sort of thing. They do not recognize the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. They, they, had, they were confused. They were misunderstanding. And this misdirection led them to reject and murder our Lord. Okay? So I try to be real clever about uh, like some headings for today. Let's just have two. Let's talk about the sovereignty, and then we'll talk about the salvation of Christ. The sovereignty of Christ, and then we'll talk about the salvation of Christ. Not, not, not very long today. Okay? Let's talk about the sovereignty. To summarize this thought out of uh, this passage, Jesus is in complete control of this situation. Jesus is guiding and directing all of the details. He is not a victim. He is not a hostage. He is not like the most unlucky individual that has ever lived. He is acting with confident control. I think about it this way. This is a plan that has been 
in the mind of God from eternity past, understanding that this was the plan to bring him the most glory. So Jesus is now an actor, the main actor, in a play that he wrote and is also directing all of the other parts of the play. All of the other characters are under his direction. He's like the star of the movie who's actually directing it all too, but he wrote and conceived it too. Like if you, I mean, you don't watch these of course, but like if, if, it, if this story was to win an Oscar, you know, Jesus would be the director, the actor, right? The screenwriter. All of it would be his. This is all his plan. He is not just being driven by the choices of sinful men. He is in charge. In fact, verse 28 says, he goes up to Jerusalem. And I'm still struck by the section back in Luke 18, maybe a page back for you in your Bible, when he talks about what is going to happen in Jerusalem. In verse number 31, it says he takes the 12 and says, we are going up to Jerusalem. That is fulfilled in Luke 19, verse 28, when he says, we are going up to Jerusalem. But in Luke 18, he tells the disciples what is going to happen when they get there. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written, already talked to you about that, about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Look at what will be accomplished. He will be delivered, he will be mocked, he will be shamefully treated, he will be spat upon, he will be flogged, and he will be killed. So if I knew that all those things were going to happen to me when I got to a certain place, I most likely would be going in the exact opposite direction of that place. Jesus instead, knowing this is going to happen to him, is determined to fulfill the mission that he himself has planned. All for getting us to the place where we can live with him, through him, for him, as was told to us in Sunday school. Luke 19.10, which we finished a couple of weeks ago, Jesus says he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so now he is going to perform that mission. In John 12, 23, a parallel passage to this, Jesus tells the disciples that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The divinely ordained plan is reaching the moment of its execution. Think about this. This is, this is in human history, which has been going on up to that point for about 4,000 years, but, but prior to that, in the preexistent minds of God, Christ, the Spirit of God, that hour had already been predicted, and now Jesus is standing up on the, on the step of that very moment and says the hour has come that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Glorified. Lifted up to die. Regardless of the enemy's desires who didn't want to kill him on the Passover. Remember that? We don't want to kill him on the Passover. There's too many people in town. Probably a million people in the city. Pilgrims who have come from all over Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate the event of Moses that I already described. They're all coming down there and they say, well, we don't want to kill this man on this weekend because he's a very popular teacher and there's all kinds of people here and if we do it now, we could have an upper on our hands. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We are doing it now. Because this is the moment that has been planned. He is going to die on the Passover to fulfill the predictions and foretelling of all that had happened in the Old Testament. He will be that ultimate Lamb of God. John 10, 17 and 18 says, No one takes my life. I have the power to lay it down. Jesus wasn't at the mercy of others. 
He wasn't beholden to Herod and Pilate and Judas and Satan, any of the Romans or Jews. John 19, 10, 11, when standing before Pilate, Pilate is saying, uh, don't you know I have the power to make a decision regarding your future? And Jesus says, you got no power, pal. That's in my own version. You don't have any power unless it has been given to you from above. Basically, he's saying, Pilate, you are a pawn in God's plan. You are being used. Yes, you are making your own conscious choice and you will be held accountable to it. But God has brought you to this moment to fulfill the destiny that I have planned from eternity past. Galatians 4.4 capsulizes all of this when it says the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born in the law, that he might become a curse for us. All of this is in the sovereign control of Christ and his sovereignty is even seen in his omniscience and authority in the rest of the story. Look at verse 30 to 34. Jesus says to the two disciples he sent on this clandestine mission to go into the village that was in front of them where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet uh, sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if someone asks you why you're untying it, say this, the Lord has need of it. I read, the most, I read two of the most ridiculous things in the course of study. First one was that Jesus probably prearranged this and this was a password, like a secret spy password. Like this is 007 or something. And, and when the disciples came, like Jesus had already spoken to these people somehow, even though he was traveling to Jerusalem this whole time. He must have texted or emailed ahead and said, hey, let's arrange this and here's the password. So when someone says, when you have, why are you doing that? Say this, the Lord has need of it. As if this is like open sesame, and then the people are going, oh, that's the key word that we were supposed to listen for. That's nonsense. And the other one, which was even worse, was it said something like, we are not told in the passage how Jesus knew about the cult. We don't need to be told how Jesus knew about the cult because Jesus is omniscient. And it, through the Spirit's uh, empowering, he understood that this, look at what he knows. He knows about the village. He knows about the cult. He knows that the cult will be tied. He knows that no one has sat on that cult. He knows that someone is going to, he knows the very words that people are going to object with. And he knows what to say to that person that is going to make this person relent and give it up. It, it's, it's, it's not like it's hypnosis where you're like, you will give me the cult. It's just that these people had been sovereignly placed in that moment by God to own this colt, this foal of a donkey, and when people came to ask for it, whether or not they meant the Lord Jehovah is asking for it, or whether or not they meant the Lord, you know, sir, the, the, the respected sir or rabbi needs it, that, that doesn't matter. The point is, is that God had previously worked in these people's hearts to just willingly say, you better take that, because Jesus needs it, Right? All of this is demonstrating the sovereignty and authority of God. It is simply a matter of Jesus saying, I need that. Those people will give it to you because I'm directing all of this. Now, here's just a quick aside. Don't you think it's ironic and intriguing how the Lord has to borrow someone's donkey? Um, it, it just shows the humility and meekness of the Lord. We are told, of course, in the Scripture that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no home. You know, everything in his life he's basically borrowing or using at the grace of others. And he, yet he had made everything. Who is the rightful owner of that cult? It's Christ. He made it. Think about this. 
He not only made it, he conceived and designed it. He, 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 uh, it's just the creativity of our wise and loving God to make a donkey. Right? This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to sound like. This is how its inner workings are all going to... And that, and that the donkey could be, or the colt could be the foal of a donkey and that these animals could interbreed with each other. It's just, and, and yet he made this thing, knows how that works. He knows when that colt was born. He knows when that colt will die. Scripture tells us he knows about the sparrows. A colt of a donkey seems to be of greater, at least, size than a sparrow. He knows when a sparrow falls. And yet he knew that this colt would be tied up to some stake and need it, and he has to go ask for what he made. I mean, this is the humility of the powerful king, right? And he rides in on that kind of a beast. Instead of a lion or an elephant, he rides in on a very humble beast. All of this is pointing to the humility of Christ. I mean, you're talking about his sovereignty, his humility. I mean, I know we're just putting two categories together, sovereignty and salvation. But the humility of Christ is so clear here. In verse number 32, after the disciples go on this mission and do their 007 password like this one guy thought. I mean, that's not what I think, but you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm making fun of that. After the people gave over the cult to be used. I like what verse number 32 says. Sometimes we race over certain parts of the story, and this one kind of struck me. So those who were sent, see verse 32, those who were sent went away and found it. Everybody read that. Found it what? Just as he had told them. Isn't that neat? That is so great. Let me make this point about it. The words of Christ do not fail. The words of Christ will always be fulfilled. What he says, he will do. What he promises, he will fulfill. Christ can be believed. Is there a troubling situation in your life that his promise of Scripture speaks to? I think about your dear family member, Trish, today, struggling with the loss of her, uh, her husband. And what Jesus spoke to troubled disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself. If Jesus' prediction about a donkey being tied up is fulfilled, can we also not trust his word and a great promise like that? Jesus' words will be fulfilled. I will never leave you or forsake you. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It is the promises of Christ that our entire hope is built on. Wouldn't you agree? Without the promises of Christ, our life, we might as well just set ourselves on fire right now. But the promises of Christ will always be fulfilled. Everything he has said will be, get this, just like he told us. Everything he said will turn out just as he told us. I like 1 Peter 2.6 when it says, that the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling, many people tripped over it. They didn't want to put their faith in Christ. But those who did found him elect and precious, and they will in no way be confounded. I think we just talked about this recently, so it's just on my mind. 
And that just means those who put their trust in Christ will never have their expectations let down. You know, I think we just talked about this, for, forgive me for repeating it, but it's like the, pers- it's like the kid who, th- who overhears, he thinks he's having a surprise party. And everybody, oh, I'm having a surprise party. He gets dressed up, he comes running in the room, and nobody's there. He misheard, and his hopes are crushed. But when we close our eyes in death, those of us who know and love Christ and have given ourselves to him in faith and repentance, when we open our eyes, all of our hopes will be just as he has told us. If you are questioning or doubting or wondering if the words of Christ are true, he knew where the donkey was. He knew what the people would say. Does he not then deserve to be trusted in these greater ways? But yes, you don't understand my situation, Pastor. Right? We all, we, there's always some excuse or some, and I, I'm in this too. I'm in this too. Folks, my biggest burden right now is the growth and sustenance of our church. And we just sang a song uh, the Holy Spirit, there was a line in there that struck me, it, it, it struck me to um, conviction, give us faith to see what we cannot see, right? When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it, but Lord, they never had to do it in a town like this or, you know, with these struggles and issues or, you know? So that's my struggle and I have other struggles too. I have a multitude of struggles, you probably know that, and you do too. All of us have burdens and needs and concerns, and the words of Jesus speak to everyone, and you should underline that in your Bible, just as he had told them. All of the words of Christ will come true. Scripture is fulfilled as Jesus gets on that donkey. Zechariah 9.9 tells us that will be the animal of choice prophesied to very occur. And again, we have a clue. We have a clue that the people should have seen. Oh, he's riding on that foal of the donkey. We should have known. We see he's the Messiah. They still would not believe. And it is a beast that no one has ever sat on. That would be especially suited for this sacred purpose, according to Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3. There, there is a clue in this passage that is not mentioned, to my knowledge, in the other passages. The triumphal entry is one of the only stories that's repeated in all four Gospels. And in this passage, there's something that I don't believe is included. I could be corrected. In verse number 29, they bring the donkey or the, or the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. That's, that's unique, I think, to this gospel. Them actually placing Jesus. What is that picture? Picture's a coronation. We are setting you on this. It's like, it's like this is the moment that we are going to honor you and exalt you as the king. But not as the right kind of king. Not as the king of kings that he was to be. And that kind of glides us into the second section. Salvation. Okay? Second thing we want to talk about. So he gets on this beast, or actually is placed on it, according to Luke. And he rides, and cloaks are spread in the road, verse 36. And look what happens in verse 37. You almost have this impromptu worship service. Uh, What a wonderful moment this was. It could have been, at least. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Jesus had already mourned back in Luke chapter 13 that Jerusalem didn't receive him. And in fact, I'll read that to you. In, in Luke 13, 31, it says, uh, at the same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. And he said some stuff, and, and not important for that right now. Uh, he said in verse 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then you fast forward to Luke 19, and that's what they're saying. And again, Jesus' fulfillment comes true. He's walking into the city which has already rejected him, and now for some reason they're receiving him because they think he's coming to provide something that they want, not something that they need, which is their salvation of their souls. I read to you from Psalm 118 this morning, talking about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They make a, they make a, a change to it in verse 38, the people who cry out. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add this very familiar phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You might write Luke 2 right there in your Bible because that sounds exactly like what the angels sang when Christ was born. And all of us are looking at it and thinking, well, what's wrong with this? This sounds really, really good. If you compare this to the other passages, at the same time they're crying out this, they're crying out the word Hosanna, which in Psalm 118 we read as, save us, I pray. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people then are accepting him as their king, hoping that they would overthrow this Roman uh, scourge that was dominating them, and not as the deliverer who would throw uh, away the bonds of sin which they were under. So many people, these people included, have the wrong version of Jesus that they're receiving and they have a misunderstanding of what burdens are the greatest burdens, right? They want to kind of add Jesus to their life, whether it be attending church or reading something about Jesus or becoming, quote, religious or spiritual. Uh, They want to add Jesus because they're having trouble with their finances and maybe Jesus will help this. And some of you are in bondage in finances, having struggles. Some of you are in bondage with health or happiness or Even something I read, Jesus brings balance to my life. I mean, like Jesus is the force or something. I mean, it's like they're just seeking to add a certain type of Jesus who is not Jesus at all. What this really is is idolatry. This is like a picture of Jesus that is not pictured in the Scripture. And if I could just add Jesus to my life and get this, then I'll be really thankful that Jesus was brought in my life. And then they get let down because... Jesus doesn't fix all the health problems, or Jesus doesn't solve all the financial problems, and they're in worse depression, and now they recoil from any talk of Jesus because they say it like, kind of like they say a vitamin, well, I tried Jesus, and he just didn't help. Instead of realizing that the greatest need that every one of us have is that we were conceived in sin and brought forth into this world as rebels against God. This is not just the world. This is every person, all of us, and are under the threat of eternal death. We'll all physically die because of our sin. There's no escaping that. But there is, hallelujah, escape from eternal or spiritual death, which is the receiving of Christ as Savior. Not as this magic potion or lamp that we can rub and fix our problems, but receiving of Him in faith and repentance, which they did not do. Look at verse 42. We're going to come to it next week, but... He says, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Peace with God. This was a coronation of a king whose time was not yet. We just spent time last week talking about the parable of the pounds where there's going to be this interim period or this pause that disciples will have to use to invest in gospel opportunities for Christ and then he will come again. The people are thinking that this is that second time where he's going to come and reign as king and throw the government away. And then you have these Pharisees who always just seem to say the right thing at the right time, right? 
These are guys you just want to hang out with. <laughs> that was a joke. Verse number 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, no. shut up those people that are praising you. Rebuke your disciples, he says. Jesus says, I tell you, if these, pointing to the people, were silent, the stones would cry out. Even the inanimate objects of nature would have enough sense to recognize Jesus rightfully. And that's why I go back to what I began with and what I'll end with is it is not necessarily more information that is needed. Who had more information than the Pharisees? Right? Who, had more, who had more religious information, scriptural information than them? Think about Paul who categorizes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisee who was zealous in the law. I mean, these guys, these guys would have large portions of it memorized and would, and would strictly obey it and adhere to it. They didn't need more information. What they needed was the Spirit of God to open their minds. Folks, if you are saved today, there is one reason for it, and that is that this, well, there's, there's several reasons for it, but in this particular context, that is that the Spirit of God told you that this was true. The Spirit of God told you it was true. Remember when uh, Jesus asks Peter and the disciples, who are people saying that I am? Well, some are saying you're Jeremiah and the prophets and a good teacher. And we went out and interviewed the people of the community. That's the answers we would get. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because man has not told you that, but the Father in heaven has revealed that information to you. All our salvation is a credit to none other than God alone who revealed this truth. This is, this is what explains why people can sit in the same services and hear the same messages. We talked about this with your cousin. Hear the same messages, and, and they are so deceived and so deluded and so confused because they live in complete and total darkness. And how we must, as Christians, get on our knees and pray for God's Spirit to do the work that we can't do. I need help in that way myself, personally, to be better at that. But this is the glory of the gospel, that God reveals this truth to us. And that those who are on the outside looking in, yes, some maybe, do, maybe some do need that information of the gospel, but many just need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. How we recognize and love this meek and lowly king, Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine. 28, 29. Let me encourage you, if you are outside of Christ or you're confused about that, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is a different king from all other kings because he doesn't conquer his enemies by force. He conquers his enemies by dying. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, He made a show of his enemies openly, triumphing over them in it as the handwriting of ordinances, which was contrary to us, was nailed to his cross, and he took that out of the way. Praise God. Praise God. Let, that, let us recognize the king and pray that the Holy Spirit would let others recognize him too. Now, we have a part to play. We can't just ignore that. We can't just stay in our closet and say, God, please, please let that person. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a partnership in the gospel. We all understand that. We are his witnesses. We give the gospel. We share it. We're like the farmer that sh spreads the seed, but it's the spirit that brings it to life. And I think there's probably people in all of our lives that we've neglected in prayer and maybe can do a better job of that. Praise God, we have a loving, meek king. Let's pray and thank him. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord, his meekness, his humility, his gentle nature. He deserves 
these accolades of the crowd, yet sadly they were in the, the wrong vein. They, they didn't understand. Someday, Lord, we are looking forward to that day when we will be gathered with all of the believers around your throne and singing, blessed is your name. And you are worthy to receive honor and glory and praise and power and strength and blessing because you have redeemed us with your blood and brought us to God and made us kings and priests together with you. And all of it is done to connect back to our Sunday school. All of this done while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. May we be motivated by these truths to go out and live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you, loving each other, sharing the gospel with the lost, living a life of meaning, advancing the kingdom of Christ. So that one day when we are at that coronation where Christ is rightly exalted and every knee is bowing and every tongue is praising, we will have a life that was not lived with regrets, wishing we had done more. I'm sure that will be the case. But let us, Father, do our best that we might not be ashamed when you come. We love you, and we thank you for our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's conclude with the singing of the last song in our book, uh, which expresses the truth that we've been talking about, what grace is ours. What grace is ours. It is all of grace that we have had this truth revealed to us, this understanding given. This is a beautiful hymn. I know you know the tune. And what grace is mine. So, so because of this grace, the motivation is in the chorus. I will do what he wants. I'll lose my life. I'll give my all to him. Let's stand together and sing it, all right? It's on page number 10.